you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for LAist's new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We are where we eat. We'll go behind the scenes of LA restaurants. The kickoff event is May 22nd. Tickets at LAist.com slash events. LAist Studios. What's scary about ChatGPT and AI, I don't think the scary thing is it's going to become independent and go rogue. The scary thing is us. Hi, everyone. This is Retake. I'm John Horn. You just heard from Betty Gilpin. She's the star of the new Peacock series, Mrs. Davis. It's a dramedy about a nun, played by Gilpin, who's on a mission to take down a powerful AI entity, short for artificial intelligence, with the seemingly benevolent name Mrs. Davis. And as it turns out, that series' premiere has come at a pretty opportune time in terms of AI. We'll hear more about the series later, but first. One of the key issues in the Writers Guild contract talks with the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers is the use of AI in content creation. It has inspired some creative protest signs from writers picketing outside studios like, AI came up with 10 suggestions for this sign, they all sucked. And Damon Lindelof, the co-creator of Mrs. Davis, was outside Amazon's headquarters with a sign that said, Alexa will not replace us. In a recent piece for Vox, Alyssa Wilkinson, a senior culture reporter and critic for the site, argued that AI could be the most important part of the writer's strike for reasons bigger than show business. When I spoke with her recently, she began by laying out some of the writer's concerns about AI. There's quite a few. So you think about the technology uh, can be used as a tool, right? You could use it as something to jog some idea loose or kind of give you some hints. That's not what they're worried about. And that's not what they're arguing against. Um, I think writers are more worried about a couple different scenarios. One is, you know, the one that kind of pops into people's heads, which is, oh, what if the AI just generates a screenplay and the um, the executive decides, yeah, it's good enough. We'll just run with it. And then a writer gets cut out entirely. Um, a second scenario and one that I think is a little more realistic is that the AI generates a screenplay. It's not great, but it's, you know, halfway there maybe. And the studio decides to hire a writer to punch it up. Um this is troubling for a couple of reasons. One is that they're almost certainly going to try to pay that writer a lot less, even though the work, as any writer knows, is actually pretty hard <laughs> to do a rewrite. Um, and it also means that the amount that they might have been paid for taking the project from idea to completion uh, is going to be reduced because now they're adapting something that exists. Um, and so those are two scenarios in which there are well-defined pay scales around, you know, original material, which they call literary work, um, or adapting work. Uh, and that 
really affects the amount they're going to get paid on the front end and also in residuals. And we certainly could end up in a situation where studios are churning out content that have no writers credited to them, cutting writers out of the picture, also creating what probably is going to be fairly subpar content. And that's troubling. There is kind of the looming issue of copyright, which has been brought up on both sides. But what we do know is that AI tools are being created so quickly that it seems possible and almost inevitable that a tool either has been created or is about to be created that a studio could use and just train it on their own IP so there wouldn't be any copyright issues. And that also is very troubling. Yeah, and the IP could be Wonder Woman and the the instructions right. to the AI engine, whatever it is, is Wonder Woman like Sahara, Thor, you know, just give it some things and it will spit out, uh, yes. you know, a story. In its current contract, the WGA says that it is, quote, seeking to regulate use of material produced using artificial intelligence or similar technologies, unquote. And the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, the bargaining entity for film and TV studios and streamers, said something AI is, quote, something that requires a lot more discussion which we've committed to doing. And obviously, talking about something is not what the Writers Guild is looking for here, right? No, that's correct. And I think what a lot of the WGA are hearing in that statement is an echo of what happened the last time around when there was a strike, um, which was 2007, and streaming hadn't really become a thing yet. It was like a technology that was available, but people weren't really using it. We were still getting our DVDs from Netflix, still watching things on cable and broadcast mostly. And at the time, you know, the line from the studios was, well, we don't really know how big of an effect streaming has, but, you know, it's not going to be as big as broadcast. And like originally they said, like, you don't need residuals from that. And eventually they the strike helped create a system in which writers do receive residuals from streaming content. But uh, the number is a lot less than what they get from broadcast. And that creates issues when streaming dominates your economy to the point where I believe the number is that half of all series writers work on streaming only shows. So I think when a lot of the writers hear this line from the studios about AI, they're hearing the same thing and they're kind of hearing them say, we want to keep talking about it, but possibly because we already have plans to use it. Right. Don't look behind the curtain, basically. But something, exactly. something that I've been thinking about, because I look back and I've been covering the Writers Guild for longer than I care to remember, <laughs> almost every strike has been around emerging platforms of delivery. So it was video yes. cassettes back in the 80s, and then it was cable television, then it was pay cable, uh, then it was streaming, and it was internet. They're all different means of distribution. AI is different. It is not a, it is not a distribution platform. It is a mm -hmm. technology that fundamentally changes the possibility for what the creative process is. And that, to me, is something that is, to use a word that's over, overly used, existential. It is not about yes. something that you can point a finger to and say, people are going to watch my movies on video cassettes. This is different. And I think that makes it really hard to figure out how to not only talk about it, but also to negotiate contract terms around it. Right, right. There are reasons that streaming in particular have made the use of AI such an existential threat. The one I keep reminding people is that 
every streamer is sitting on giant piles of data about what people want to watch and would love nothing more, I think, than to have a technology that could generate things on the fly to fit those specifications. So kind of taking the algorithm and using it to not just recommend content to people, but create it on the spot. Um, that could happen. I don't know if it'd be any good. I don't really like the idea of that myself, but I think that one thing that the viewing public has been kind of tuned to enjoy and like and expect is content that fits their specifications, what they want it to be, and to be put off by things that are surprising or that are challenging or that go in an unexpected direction. And that's that's definitely an issue here. I also think what you said is correct, that the the issue is will writers exist in the future or will it become this specialized little category that people can only really afford to get into if they are like independently wealthy or don't have a reason that they have to make a living. Um, I don't really want to live in that world. It feels like Hollywood has just started to make strides in the other direction where more voices from more you know, backgrounds with more stories to tell have been allowed into the tent in the past 10 years or so. And this is a really good way to just shove them back out again. Um, and it's hard not to think that that's a little bit of what's going on here. We're talking mostly about words, but there is an application of AI that isn't about words. It's about mm. bodies. And that is the way mm -hmm. that an actor's body can be scanned or mapped. And I mean, this is kind of what happens in movies like Avatar, where there is something called performance capture, motion capture, where an actor's body is mapped. Now, that actor is kind of a willing participant in that, in that mm -hmm. creation. They are on the set, they're doing what they're doing, and then their bodies become, you know, somebody who lives on Pandora, which normal yeah. humans can't. But there is a darker side to that, and that is that yes. actors can be in movies or playing characters that they didn't sign up to be. So what is the uh, what is the worst version of that? And it's like, you know, what we see, uh, you know, Internet fakes where people's faces are pasted over nude women's bodies. A few years ago, uh, Gemini Man came out. Right. And in that film, Will Smith uh, fights a younger version of himself and they basically took Will Smith's image from when he was younger, because, of course, they have all that. And they generated a young Will Smith, stretched it. They called it a mask. They stretched it over his performance and he performed his other self. And I, I was struggling with it because I was like, well, is this a replacement if you have to still have an actor playing it? And then I went to uh, Q&A and Will Smith was sitting there saying, yeah, this is so great. Like, uh, pretty soon I'll, I won't have to act again because they have me, you know, and they can just uh, do whatever. And I was like, I wouldn't be so happy about that, Will Smith. But the thing is, Will Smith is not in danger, <laughs> you know, because he uh, he's not vulnerable to market pressures the way that a younger actor might be. Um, who might be offered a lot less money and then find themselves in a position of having become a star, but not benefiting from it. Um, or even, I think, a even more basic one is is voice actors. Like, there's a lot of voice actors who do voiceovers or read audiobooks, things like that. They're all in SAG-AFTRA as well. And they're very worried that they'll be replaced by AIs. And 
that's troubling. I mean, again, we're we're reaching the point where the goal is always to cut the humans out of the process as much as possible in order to maximize profits. And that is a dangerous place to be in. Um, and, you know, the one thing I kind of appreciate about this happening now is that it feels like Hollywood's on the leading edge of something that's going to affect all of us really soon. That was Vox senior culture reporter Alyssa Wilkinson. Coming up after the break, actress Betty Gilpin. She played the wrestler Liberty Bell in the critically acclaimed Netflix series Glow. Her new show on Peacock is called Mrs. Davis. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com slash sweeps. LAist has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAist.com events. Welcome back to Retake. I'm John Horn. You just admitted to destroying my life. Why in God's name would I do anything for you? Because I would grant you a wish. Well, wishes are for little girls. I'm betting someone who had a lot of disappointment in their life said that to you. What kind of wish? That's a scene from the new series, Mrs. Davis. Betty Gilpin plays Simone, who's a nun, who in that scene is communicating with an AI program known as Mrs. Davis. Simone is getting her AI marching orders through a kindergarten teacher, played by Ashley Romans, who is talking to Mrs. Davis through an earpiece. Gilpin doesn't describe herself as a person of faith, but she did grow up with a dad who is an Episcopal priest. Coincidentally, I did too, and it was at my dad's former church, All Saints Pasadena, where I met my wife. And that's where our conversation begins. I knew very little about nuns, um, and my dad connected me with some nuns to talk to because it was really important to me that, you know, I realized, okay, I I have a different background. I have different beliefs. Um but I want to do this relationship and character justice and really play it truthfully um, as truthfully as possible. And so I talked to these women who talked about their very real relationship and um, you know, that they uh, I think I had had this idea in my head, like, Oh, nuns are uh, cutting themselves off from society and certain aspects of life to sort of white knuckle a way of life that doesn't exist anymore um, to disconnect. And in talking to these women, it's it's so the opposite. They they are yes, they're cutting themselves off from society in a certain way, 
and certain aspects of life in order to hyper connect. Um, they are living screens really. Um, whereas I feel often like there's a cement door between me and my capacity for existential thought. They are just, uh, they're just living in a, in an arms open way and walking the walk in ways that, um, many people aren't. Uh, I was very, very, very impressed. There is a general belief, which obviously is misinformed, and that's the premise of the show, that computers and AI are smarter than we are and that they can do things that we can't. And obviously, this was shot well before we were talking about chat GPT or AI, which is part of the Writers Guild negotiations now, and that actors are worried about, about having scans of themselves taken uh, so they can be artificial AI avatars of the real person in movies. How do you think that whole stuff lands? Because it certainly has changed from the time you were making the show to the time it's coming out. I think about... What's scary about chat GPT and AI, it's not that it's, I don't think the scary thing that is it's, it's going to be become independent and go rogue. The scary thing is us, you know, how we use just the internet now. Um, it has the capability to make us smarter and connect us and solve problems. And we, in my view, primarily use it to disconnect and separate us and make us dumber and cause problems. That's not the internet's fault. That's our fault. Um, It just makes it worse. (laughs) Um, So I'm scared that we're developing this technology that has the potential to save humanity (laughs) and solve our problems. And we're the bozos making the choice to use it to be our downfall. Like, what, what, right. is that the choice we're going to make? Um, and that freaks me out. I mean, yeah, as an actor, it's terrifying. I did this miniseries a couple of years ago and uh, the character of my husband, it was a storyline where he cheated on me and there was a scene where there was a woman who fell asleep on his chest, this woman that he cheats on my character with. And then in post, they said, oh, we love the chemistry between you guys. We decided we didn't want him to cheat on you. So we're just going to face swap you. Oh my and God. Put your face on that woman's face, her body. Um, and so I sat in a room with a billion cameras and they scanned my face and it's in the show that, and you can kind of tell that something's weird, but not really. And that was two years ago. And And now, and I remember the dude who was scanning my face was like, you know, they own this now. You don't own this. That's terrifying. So terrifying. But I didn't, you know, I just thought, oh, it's, it's like doing ADR. It's like, it's just a a quick fix in post. So, you know, who knows now what is going to happen with that. But also (laughs) one of the things that this, this show is saying is that how somebody validates their life and their existence is wrong because in the series, it's like not retweets or likes or followers, it's wings. You know, you get points for right. doing things, but it's all about your status as measured on a some sort of social media basis. And I'm wondering if it if that part of it speaks to you about how people are judged, you know, like what's your Rotten Tomatoes score? Where are you on the IMDb right. star meter? How do you describe yeah. your own relationship 
to that external ranking that you cannot escape unless you really try to. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, it's one of the reasons I'm not on public social media, not because I'm so evolved and um, better than it. It's because I know I'm not evolved enough to not uh, buy into that temptation of, of scrolling for validation um, for personal validation. Uh, I think that, um, you know, I, was drawn to being an actor from watching my parents do plays. And in theater, it's very different. It's uh, the focus is kind of the fizz between two actors. It really is about the inexplicable thing that happens between two people. Um, and what was a real adjustment for me uh, in moving to film and TV and then to having, you know, whatever level of, success or non-success I've had is it really becomes a lot about selling yourself as an individual. And I think you can really get trapped in that solipsism and narcissism almost. Uh, and I get superstitious that it'll make you unable to, to access uh, the intangible. If, if you're so locked into your own presence as an individual and are you liked or not? But unfortunately, I think one's presence on the internet, both the pedestals and the guillotines are undeserved and not in touch with reality. Um, but I think that we are just as humans, so, uh, so lonely and depressed and lost that we use the internet not to connect, but to make us feel like God. <laughs> if we have a screen in our pocket that provides all the answers, do we stop asking the big questions? And it's something I, Betty, worry about as well. That was actress Betty Gilpin. Mrs. Davis is streaming on Peacock now. New episodes come out on Thursdays. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. The journalists of LAist work for you. I'm LAist correspondent Frank Stoltz. With Democracy at a Crossroads, my job is to cover civics and democracy from the voters' perspective. I examine who holds power, how they wield it, and how that affects all of us across Southern California. LAist. Independent journalism. Fact-based journalism. And finally, it is time for my entertainment news chat with Elias 89.3 Morning Edition host Suzanne Watley. This week we talked, not surprisingly, about the WGA strike and how the last writer's strike in 2007 helped a certain TV celebrity rise to the most powerful position in the United States. 
Before we get into our history lesson, let's get folks up to date on this strike, and that is well into its second week now. How are WGA members making their impact felt beyond the writers' rooms and the picket lines at the studio entrances? Well, we have said from the beginning that the writers are very organized, and one of the ways that they are organized is they are collecting intelligence about what shows are shooting on location and where. And they show up to those locations, they set up pickets, and there are certain guilds, including the Teamsters, that will won't cross those pickets. So basically, they're able to shut those shows down. On the East Coast, the Showtime series Billions was shut down. Briefly, Paramount Plus's Evil was shut down. Apple TV's Severance was shut down. Back on this side of town, the series Loot was shut down. That's another Apple TV Plus series. And there's a show called The Old Man. It's an FX series starring Jeff Bridges that is shooting on location around the corner from my house later this week. And I'll be very interested to see if WGA pickets show up there. I'll be out with my microphone to find out. But that's one of the things they're doing. Outside of the studio gates, they're going out around town to location shoots and trying to interrupt them. And they're succeeding, by and large. And you spoke this week with one of the striking writers whose credits include Gordita Chronicles and Brooklyn Nine-Nine. What did she have to say? Well, she had a lot to say. But more broadly, she talked about kind of this existential threat to writers in the business. Here's what she had to say on that topic. What we're defending is the very existence of writing as a profession, which happened also previously, you know, um, in sort of the blacklist era when we were trying to defend against free speech. And so now we're faced with the issue that writers are being systematically removed from the writing process. So that's the ultimate marginalization, in my opinion. (laughs) Um, And we're also working to preserve the opportunities for diversity to continue to exist in writing as a profession, which, again, is another form of marginalization that we found that studios aren't very sensitive to. That's uh, Bridget Munoz-Lebowitz, who is a showrunner, and she came in to talk with us the other day. I'm speaking with LAist Arts and Entertainment reporter John Horn. You have a new story up on our website, LAist.com, that really grabbed my attention. It's titled, How the WGA Strike of 2007 Brought Donald Trump to power. Let's hear your analysis, John. Well, there are a lot of things that can influence world history, but what is true is that before November 2007, Donald Trump was a fading reality TV star. But the 2007 strike by the Writers Guild gave him new life. He came back with his Apprentice series spinoff called The Celebrity Apprentice, and NBC put it on its schedule when they had run out of episodes of other series, specifically The Office. So that's what happened. And at the time, NBC had taken uh, The Apprentice off its fall schedule in 2007. And I think you know where this might play out. Trump didn't want to be fired, so he quit instead. Hi, folks. I'm giving out a big award tonight. I think you made a lot of mistakes. I brush. I think you made a lot of mistakes. I accept that I made mistakes. You're fired. So anyway, The Celebrity Apprentice comes back because unscripted shows were not covered by the Writers Guild of America. And remember, NBC had pulled The Apprentice off the air just before the strike. So the show gets a new life, and it runs for seven years, all the way up to his announcing his run for the presidency. And you can argue, I think reasonably, that without Celebrity Apprentice, he's forgotten. But with Celebrity Apprentice, he has a TV audience, he has his own fame, and he also has this image 
of himself as a shrewd and successful businessman, all of which comes to play when he decides to run for president. Very interesting. And again, you can read more about that on Elliot.com. John Horn, our arts and entertainment reporter, thank you so much for being on Morning Edition. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to Retake. I'm John Horn. Retake is produced and engineered by Michael Cosentino, Monica Bushman, and Taylor Kaufman, who is also my session director. The editor is Suzanne Levy. Listeners like you help make Retake possible. So please donate now at elias.com forward slash join. And thanks. Support for this podcast is made possible by Gordon and Donna Crawford believe that quality journalism makes Los Angeles a better place to live. As a farmer's son from a desert region in California, J.B. Hamby thinks a lot about water. I spent a lot of time digging up history, particularly about water, which is the origins of the Imperial Valley. How this 28-year-old became the youngest lead negotiator on the Colorado River ever and how he could shape the most consequential negotiations to date. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts.